The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. The first place I want you to turn to is Joshua chapter 5. You can hold your thumb there. And then I want you to also turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. So Joshua chapter 5 and Deuteronomy chapter 6. We are continuing our series looking at this wonderful, amazing book, the book of Joshua. Um, And the title of my message for you tonight is Brought Out to Go In. The passage I want to read to you out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, it I want to pick things up there in verse 20. And this is the word of the Lord to his people that he speaks through Moses. And this is what he says. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Somebody say amen to that. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. He brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. Again, I draw your attention to those two phrases. He brought us out so that he might bring us in. And I just want to make note of the fact that that's always the way the Lord works. The Lord brings us out in order to bring us in. In the case of the Israelites, he brought them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt in order that he might bring them into freedom in Canaan. Now, between those two places, between deliverance from Egypt and freedom in Canaan, there was this in-between period. That in-between place is called the wilderness. So God had to lead them through the wilderness between deliverance and freedom. And this was an important part of the process, an important part of the journey. You see, it was one thing for God to bring the people out of Egypt, but then it was going to take some time to get Egypt out of the people. And so that's what God was dealing with when they were in the wilderness, But one thing to note is that that journey didn't have to be nearly as long as they made it. Their time in the wilderness, it could have been cut short by about 40 years, because that's how long they spent in the wilderness. But the distance between Egypt and Canaan was a distance of about 11 days journey. But because of their stubbornness, because of their disobedience and their defiance, the Israelites ended up spending 40 years wandering around the wilderness. That stinks. But if you think about it, I know a lot of Christians who have spent perhaps just as much time wandering around in a metaphorical wilderness. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Far too many Christians fail to recognize that deliverance from sin and bondage pictured by Egypt is only part of what Jesus came to do. 
You see, he brought us out from sin and bondage and slavery in Egypt in order that he might bring us into a land flowing with milk and honey, into a land characterized by victory and flourishing and abundance and the spirit-filled life. That's what Canaan represents. But what I see is a lot of Christians just wandering around day after day, month after month, year after year, and in some cases, decade after decade, and they're wandering around in this place called the wilderness. And God is saying to you, I want to bring you out so that I can bring you in. You don't have to stay in this metaphorical wilderness. And that's what the book of Joshua is all about. It's about walking into and possessing the promises of God. In fact, that's what we titled this entire series. We call it Walking in the Promises. And in the chapter before us, chapter five, what we're going to get to see is Israel is finally taking their first steps inside the promised land. It's a good day by all accounts. They'd made it. It was an exciting time. But just because they had made it this far didn't mean that their battles were done. You see, in many ways, a lot of their toughest battles still lied ahead of them. In the same way as Christians, when you step into that life of flourishing and abundance and victory, that doesn't mean that you're going to have a life free from problems, that you're never going to have to fight any battles. There are plenty of battles in the Christian life. It's just that we walk from victory to victory, from faith to faith. God takes us from glory to glory. And so we walk in victory in that way. So that's where the Israelites are at. But before God has them go into battle, the first thing that he does is he has them place a a camp at a place called Gilgal because there was something important that he wanted to do there. And with that, let's go ahead and jump into our text. Pick up with me there in Joshua 5, verse 1. It says, Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, Their hearts melted in fear, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. So the crossing of the Jordan, it was this miraculous event that we looked at a few weeks back. It accomplished a couple of different things for the Israelites. The first thing that it did is it built up and shored up their faith in God. And that's always the result of getting to see God move powerfully. Whenever God does a work in your life and you get to see him move in the miraculous, it has a way of strengthening your faith. And God does that because he knows you're going to face greater challenges in the future. And so along the way, he peppers our journey with these moments where he instills greater faith in us so that that can carry us through the challenges that the future holds. So that's one thing that God was doing. He was building up their faith. But there was another thing that God was doing through that miracle, and that was he was forever solidifying and establishing Joshua as the leader of God's people um, in the minds of the people. You see, up until that moment, when Joshua was walking, for better or worse, in Moses' shadow, and Moses cast a long shadow, as you might imagine. But from that moment on, the day that they crossed the Jordan on dry ground, the Bible tells us this. That day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him all the days of his life, just as they had stood in awe of Moses. So 
This cemented Joshua's leadership status among the people. And then there was a third thing that God accomplished through the crossing of the Jordan. And that is that he wanted to strike fear in the hearts of all the Canaanite peoples and all of the surrounding nations. When they heard about what God had done for the Israelites, I love the way the scripture puts it. It says that their hearts melted with fear. Now from a military or a strategic point of view, This would have been the perfect time for the Israelites to launch an all-out offensive. Their enemies were reeling. They were on their heels. They were stricken with fear. Their backs were against the wall. Their hearts were melting. The Israelites had them right where they wanted them. The time to attack was now, right? Strike while the iron is hot, probably is what Joshua and his military brass were thinking. That's not what God had them do. Instead, As we move on, we're going to see God instructing Joshua to do something that runs completely counterintuitive to all human wisdom. Let's look at verse two. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, take out the Canaanites. No, that's not what it says. He said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. What? So Joshua made flint knives and he circumcised the Israelites at Gibeah Haraloth. Now, this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. And all the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died. And since they had not obeyed the Lord, for the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place. And these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. So there you have it came tonight hoping to hear about circumcision, and I'm here to make your dreams come true. (laughs) Let's be honest. This is a curious thing that God asks Joshua to do. I mean, it bears repeating, doesn't it, that from a strategic or military standpoint, this makes absolutely zero sense. After they'd been circumcised, every male in the nation would be temporarily disabled and rendered unable to fight. It would have left the entire nation vulnerable and and, and open to attack from the enemy. Should any one of those surrounding nations decide to attack, Israel would have had no recourse. They would have been unable to mount any kind of defense. They were literally sitting ducks. And so it seems silly, unsensical, and senseless, unwise. But here's where we're reminded that God doesn't see things the way that we see things. You see, through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord declared, my thoughts aren't your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God doesn't think like we think. We have a certain way of seeing things and seeing the world around us, but God sees things through heaven's perspective. In fact, according to the verse we just read there in Isaiah, it says that 
the distance that separates the heavens from the earth is representative of the distance between your best thought on your best day. When you woke up and you had your Wheaties for breakfast and you're just like firing on all cylinders, your best thought, it's, it falls utterly short of God's thoughts as high as the heavens are above the earth. Now, we know that according to astronomers, um, the, the, the distance or the circumference of the known universe, I say known universe because it's continually expanding and growing, but astronomers tell us that the circumference of the known universe is about 93 billion light years. So to put that into perspective, light travels about 6 trillion miles in one light year. So 93 billion light years is the distance between your best thought and God's thoughts. The point, well, God, what God asked Joshua to do probably makes zero sense from our earthly viewpoint. It can still make perfect sense from heaven's perspective. You see, God wasn't just interested in immobilizing Israel's army. He was up to something. Actually, he was up to several things. He, he wanted to teach the nation of Israel several important lessons and to drive some truths firmly down into the bedrock of their hearts. And so I want to work my way through a few of those with you tonight. The first thing that he was doing is he was reminding them that the battle belonged to him. Think about it like this. In their weakened state, the Israelites would have no other choice but to trust God completely with their defense. They had to lean on him for protection. And let me just suggest to you that that's exactly what God wanted. He wanted them to know from the get-go that the key to victory in every battle that they were going to face, and there would be many battles to come, and he wanted them to know that the key to victory in every one of those battles would be an unwavering trust in him. And so that's why one of the reasons why he asked Joshua to have the men circumcised. He knew what he was doing. He wanted to immobilize them so that they would have to rely on him completely and trust him wholly. It was like, it was a perfect trust or exercise in trust. I love the way Corey Tim Boom put it. She said, sometimes you don't really know God's all you need until God's all you have. And God knows that, which is why sometimes he'll put us in a position where we are forced to trust in him, where we have nowhere else to turn. For his part, the psalmist said it like this, no king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. And a horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. And I think that's a wonderful reminder for all of us. You see, in our lives, we need to constantly be reminded of the fact that it's not the brilliance of our ideas or the cleverness of our concepts or the skill of our designs that's going to see us through and bring us to victory. It is our unwavering trust in and wholehearted dependence upon the Lord. And that was the key for Israel back then. And it's the key for us today. So that's one lesson that God was driving home to his people. But there was a second lesson that God was driving home into the hearts of the children of Israel, and that is the absolute necessity of total devotion. Not just total trust, but total devotion. You see, in verses four through seven, Joshua actually fills us in on why the Lord had him circumcise these men in particular. 
Evidently, the men that had come up out of Egypt and been delivered by God through the hand of Moses, they had already been circumcised, but their offspring hadn't been. So there was a need for a new generation to establish their own covenant with the Lord. You see, they couldn't rely on a previous generation's experience with God. They couldn't rely on the faith of their parents. They couldn't rely on the faith of their grandparents. They had to have their own personal encounter with the Lord, their own personal consecration to the things of God. And let me just say to you that the same is true for each and every one of us. See, some of you were blessed to grow up in a Christian home like I was. And that is a blessing. Oh, man, if you think your parents are strict and they're, they're always taking you to church and reading the Bible to you, count your blessings. <laughs> Man, that is a blessing from the Lord, but that can't save you. You see, you can't get into heaven on your parents' faith. Um, God doesn't have any grandchildren, it's been said. He only has sons and daughters. What that means is you have to have your own walk with God, just like the Israelites had to. And for for, for them, the sign of that covenant was circumcision. So what's the deal with that? Well, the word circumcision might give us a clue. It literally means to cut away. More specifically, it means a cutting away of the flesh. You see, from the very beginning, it was supposed to serve as a physical reminder of the eternal covenant that God established between himself and Abraham and his descendants after him. This covenant, it was a unilateral agreement in which God did all of the blessing, God did all of the work, and Abraham just had to believe the promises of God. And as a sign of that faith, God asked him to circumcise both himself and all the men in his household. So in that way, circumcision acted as an outward symbol of an inward commitment of faith. Beyond that, The other thing that circumcision did is it marked God's people out as distinct and separate from all the surrounding nations. But I want to be careful here to point out that it was never primarily supposed to be about the outward act. You see, the act of cutting away the flesh was merely supposed to serve as a symbol of cutting of the heart. Here's what the Lord said in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, in order that you might live. It's our hearts that God is after. But perhaps you're thinking, okay, I'm still a little fuzzy on where this relates to me in my life personally. What does this all have to do with me? And the answer is a lot. Let me try to explain. You see, in scripture, whenever you read about the flesh, What you're reading about is our natural sinful state apart from God. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he put it like this. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit brings life and peace. So the flesh, your flesh that you were born in Adam as a descendant of Adam with a sinful fleshly nature, it is hostile to God and destined for destruction. Therefore, it has to be dealt with, it has to be cut off, it has to be cast aside. So where and how does this happen? It happens at the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the cross is what deals with our flesh. And I'm going to get theological on you again. This is Paul writing to the church at Colossians. He said, in him, that is in Christ, you were also circumcised. So he's talking to Christians here. In the putting off of the sinful nature 
not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. That's Colossians chapter two, verses nine through 12. So notice how in this passage, Paul draws a a line of connection between the Old Testament rite of circumcision and the New Testament practice of baptism. And what he's telling us is this. Just as in circumcision, it dealt with the cutting away of the flesh. In baptism, there is this picture, this symbolism of the repudiation, the renunciation of the old life, and this embracing of the new life, which is marked by holiness and dedication to Christ. So about a month ago, I think, we we had a baptism here, and we saw, what was it, 50 people going down into the water, and we would submerge them under the water, and then they would come up out of the water, and we'd all clap and go crazy, and we'd get excited. Why? Because of the picture that was being illustrated. It was as if we were saying with every baptism, as you go under the water, the old you, the part of you that is sinful and fleshly in nature and hostile towards God and destined for destruction, that's dying with Christ in his death on the cross. He dealt with your sin. And so we're picturing that in this symbolic act. But then God didn't stay dead, did he? Amen. And so we come back and bring you back up out of the water. And that's symbolic of the new life that you're given in Christ. So that's what baptism pictures and symbolizes. But I want to be quick to point out that when it comes to dealing with our flesh, it's not just a one and done kind of thing. It's something that we have to do daily wherever and whenever we find areas of compromise or worldliness, we need to be quick to cut those things off. So with that being said, let me just ask you at this moment, is there an area of your life that needs to be cut off tonight? If so, then let me encourage you to deal with those things right now. Repent. Get rid of it. Cut it off. Don't let the enemy rip you off any longer because you can't enter into the new promises of God while you're still holding on to the past. So you cut it away and then you stand back and watch as the Lord brings healing to your soul. You see, verse eight is so cool. I love how verse eight says, and after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. So after the cutting away, after we deal with the sin, yes, it is painful, it hurts, and there is a process of pain that we walk through when we deal with the sin in our lives because of its destructive impact on our hearts and and the collateral damage that it brings into our family's lives. But then there is also a time of healing. You see, I think of what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, and in response, the crowd gathered, they were cut to their hearts, and they said, what should we do? And Peter said, repent and turn to God so that your sins might be wiped out, and so that times of refreshing might come from the presence of the Lord. God wants to bring healing into your heart and soul today. That's exactly what happens every time we deal with our flesh, and it's exactly what happened at Gilgal. There was a cutting away of the flesh, and then came the healing. Now, I love verse 9, and we'll finish with this. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, so the place has been called Gilgal to this day. The Lord says, I've rolled away your reproach. 
First comes the cutting away, then comes the healing. And the result of that is that the reproach is rolled away. Now, another way of saying that is to say that God rolled away their shame. But you might, you might say to me, why did they need to have their shame rolled away? Well, think about it like this. Their parents had come out of a life of slavery and 430 years of slavery, it does something to your psyche. And what it had done to this people is they had taken their identity and they had wrapped it around their experience as slaves. And through this act, God says, from this moment on, I'm rolling away all the shame that came from that experience. You are no longer slaves, but I want you to relate to me as sons and as daughters. He's giving them a new identity here. As a matter of fact, from this point forward, God will no longer refer to the Israelites as a people, but from this moment forward, he begins to call them a nation. And he's giving them this brand new identity, but they have to embrace it. You see, a lot of them were struggling to accept their new identity as sons. It's like they were so firmly entrenched. It was something that had become so ingrained in them that on a number of occasions, we read about the Israelites saying to Moses, you know what, just take us back. We want to go back to slavery. We wish you would take us back to Egypt. And we read that and we think, how could they do that? I mean, really? You remember Egypt? Making bricks without straw? Having to sacrifice your children? And you want to go back to that? And we think they're crazy. But the truth is, aren't we just like the Israelites? How many times after we've been delivered and God has set us free, deliverance, and we say, you know what? I think I want to go back to the bondage. I want to go back to Egypt. I want to go back to slavery. And God says, no, no, no. I brought you out in order that I might bring you in. I want to give you a new identity. But it's hard to break those labels. You see, they were wearing the label of slave. I wonder what label the enemy has tried to put on you that you're struggling to break free from tonight. Maybe the label that he's given you is that you're dumb, you're stupid. Maybe the label you need to break free from is that you're ugly or that you're fat or that nobody would want you or that you're unlovable or that nobody likes to hang out with you or that you'll never go anywhere in life or that you're a slut. And what the enemy does is he tries to define us by something that we've done in our past and he tries to say, what you did is who you are and that's where the birthplace of shame happens. And he takes a lie and he, he labels us with that lie and he says, what you did, it's not just an act, it's an identity. And so we wear that, and what it does is it weighs us down. And that's why, friends, that's why the Lord brings them to Gilgal. You see, Gilgal is a special place. Oh, this is about to get good. You see, Gilgal, the name Gilgal, it means to roll away. That's why he says, I have called it Gilgal to this day, because your reproach has been rolled away. He's rolling away the shame, rolling away the old identity, rolling away the labels. But check this out. The word Gilgal, it's really close, closely related to, and is derived from the word Gilal, G-A-L-A-L, Galal, which means, get this, to whirl, to remove contempt, okay, or to roll in the blood. Where is the place that God takes them to remove their shame, to give them a new identity, 
to, to bring them into the fullness that he has for them. It's Galal. It's the place where they're rolled in the blood. Come on, somebody. There is power in the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. No other fountain, I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus, there is power in the blood of Jesus. One drop of Jesus' blood is enough to wash away a lifetime's worth of sin and guilt and shame. And the fact of the matter is, when Jesus went to the cross, he paid for all of your sins. It's been dealt with and done there at the cross. And then on the third day, what happened? He rose from the dead, but he did, when he rose from the dead, what, what did he do? He rolled the stone away. Now, he didn't need to do that. He could walk through walls. He later demonstrated that. And one reason he rolled the stone away is so that the disciples could get in and see that the tomb was empty. But I think he also rolled the stone away to remind us that our shame has been rolled away. You see, without the cross, we would be stuck with our shame forever. But when we come to the cross and see Jesus there, it releases us, it unlocks us, and it rolls off the shame from our shoulders. You guys have no doubt heard of the book Pilgrim's Progress. It's a Christian classic, a must read on the, the bookshelf of every Christian. Maybe some of you are reading in school. I don't know. <laughs> Written by a guy named John Bunyan. I'll take that as a yes. It's an allegory of the Christian life. Ryan could come up here and tell us about it, I'm thinking. But it's this allegory of the Christian life, right? And it's the story of this guy, Christian. And at the beginning of the story, he sets out from the city of destruction and he wears on his back this heavy burden. It's a defining characteristic of his life. And no matter how hard he tried and no matter what he did, he found that he was unable to release himself from this burden. Then in one poignant scene, the book describes how Christian was finally able to be set free. And I'm gonna let Bunyan take it from here. He wrote this. He ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending. And upon that place stood a cross and little below in the bottom, a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble. And so continued to do so until it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. Hallelujah. Shortly thereafter, Christian sings his song of deliverance. He said, thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in till I came hither. What a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must hear the burden fall from off my back? Must hear the strings that bound it to me crack? Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. This is how salvation comes to us. It comes when we run to the cross and there allow our burdens to roll off our backs and down into the empty tomb. Listen to me. Some of you have been holding on to pain, labels, identities, regrets, guilt, and shame for way too long, and it's time to let it go. God is saying to you tonight, how long are you going to continue to insist on living in something that's over? 
How, are you, how long are you gonna live under the constant stab of, of what was done to you or self-condemnation? How, are you, how, are, how long are you gonna live under the pain of what's already passed? How, are, how long are you gonna allow the enemy to compromise your destiny because you can't get past your history? How long are you gonna stay stuck in what was? Because as long as you stay stuck in what was, you'll never see what could be or what God wants to bring you into. You see, it's time to stop living under the reproach of Egypt. It's time to come to the cross, to be healed by the blood, to be set free from your burden. So as we close this evening, I'd just like to read a few scriptures that talk about the extent to which God's forgiveness comes to us. In Psalm 103, verse 12, the psalmist says, he's removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. And I never get tired of reading that verse. Many of you know that east never touches west. You can circumnavigate the globe heading east and you'll never run into west. And likewise, heading west, you'll never start going east. You'll just keep going west. That's how far God has removed your sin from you. And that's incredible. But he not only removes our sin completely, he also forgets our sin immediately. This is Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, this is the Lord, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Now, it's not that he forgets our sins in the way that you and I forget. He's not like, oh, where is my keys? It's not that kind of forgetting. It's that he consciously makes a decision not to recall them and bring, or bring them to his remembrance. There's a story, real quick story, about a woman named Clara Barton. She's the founder of um, the American Red Cross. And there was this story of how one time someone came up to her and reminded her about something terrible that someone else had done to her years before. By the way, she needed a different friend. Like, what is this person doing? <laughs> but when they did this, she acted as if she had never heard of the incident. They said, no, no, don't you remember it? No, came Barton's reply. I distinctly remember forgetting it. That's God with us. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And you say, Lord, I'm so sorry. And you keep coming back and you've already confessed and you've already repented. And God's saying, what are you talking about? I have no recollection of that. I distinctly remember forgetting that sin. The apostle Paul, and I'll close with this. He encouraged us to marvel at this love that is so perfectly expressed in the cross when he said, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ? How long is God's love for you? Well, before you were even born, he set his love on you and he'll continue to show it to you in the ages to come. How high is God's love? The Bible says as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how high his love is towards you. And we already established that that's about 93 billion light years and growing. How wide is God's love? Wide enough to cover all your sin. How deep is God's love? Deep enough to reach into the lowest depths of hell to save you. He's the God who leaves the 99 to go in search of that one lost land. Let the love of God heal you tonight. Let it roll off your back. Tonight is a night of healing. There's got to be a cutting away. And yes, there's pain in the cutting away. You got to deal with your sin. You can't hide it. God can't bless, God can't heal what you continue to conceal. 
So you, you bring it out, you expose the sin, and God heals it. You cut it away. You roll in the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And there's healing there, and it rolls off of you, and then you walk in that blessedness and healing. Let's run to Jesus right now and be set free. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.